Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy, the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. C4 Smart Energy. Stay focused. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi there, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, we journey to Queens, New York. And for many, it's an underappreciated borough. I'll sit down with Queensboro President Donovan Richards to find out how and why more than 200 languages are spoken in Queens. And a closer look at LaGuardia, once described by Joe Biden as a third world airport. Then a trip to the Louis Armstrong House, Actually, the Lewis Armstrong House. I'll explain why. Danny Zausner, the CEO of the National Tennis Center, also known as the host of the U.S. Open, will stop by. Finally, Sally Tennant, with the surprises that await you at the Queens Museum. First up, Queensboro President Donovan Richards. Graduation is a sweet occasion, but finding the perfect gift can be a bitter struggle. MMS.com has a solution personalized M&Ms. Just imagine the look on your grad's face when they receive a custom candy creation featuring their school's colors, name, and even their photo printed right on some M&Ms. It's a thoughtful way to celebrate their accomplishments and make the occasion even more special. Visit MMS.com to create your own personalized gifts and party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code WONDERY to receive 15% off your next order. Donovan Richards, how are you, sir? Great to be here, Peter. Now, I, I have to say, because this is radio, I noticed that you're wearing an orange and blue tie, which can only mean you're a fan of the New York Mets. Absolutely. We are diehard fans here, and uh, Mets are the only way to go in New York City. You know, we go back to the days when, and I'm dating myself, but when the Dodgers left Brooklyn, and you go back and read about Robert Moses, uh, the reason why the Dodgers left Brooklyn is because they wanted to build a stadium that was better than Ebbets Field. And Robert Moses wouldn't let him do it. And so the owner of the Los Angeles Dodgers, the Brooklyn Dodgers, said, okay, we're leaving. Here's the irony. Where'd they build Chase Stadium? Exactly where they wanted to build the Dodger Field, and that's where City Field is right now. It's a beautiful place. I know. Hey, Shake Shack. <laughs> yeah, oh, you can't go wrong. But you, you got to get on the outskirts, too, because there's just so much good food around City Field. So don't get caught up with just what's at City Field. Sorry, Steve Cohen. Uh, get into Jackson Heights and East Elmhurst and Corona. And you're going to find some good food. Well, let's talk about Queens anyway, because we got to give it a sense of place, right? First of all, it's a borough that got its name because of what? United Nations. Yeah, exactly. And it's really part of Long Island in a way, right? Not really, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, and and the thing is, it's it's a, a populous uh, borough. It's multilingual, um, and of course, it's it's the New York Mets. It's the home of LaGuardia. It's the home of JFK. 
There's only one way to get into New York City, and it's through Queens. And uh, it's a special place, you know, being borough president, and I've been borough president for about 14 months now. It's really amazing and fascinating. 2.4 million residents, 190 countries represented, over 350 languages and dialects spoken in Queens County alone. And how many restaurants? (laughs) Ooh. Oh, there's one opening every day. We're in one. (laughs) Downstairs is a new one, but thousands of restaurants. This is a new hotel. Yes. Yes, it's beautiful. And I grew up out here uh, further east, but uh, it's amazing to see the transformation on Rockaway Beach. But most people don't really know where Queens is. They just sort of like, oh, I'm in Queens, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, I always have this laugh, this this running joke that it's probably easier to get to uh, Florida by plane than uh, Manhattan by train from here. Uh, so many people view Queens as, as really far, uh, but it's so close. And you come to Rockaway, you don't even feel like you're in Queens. No, this is a different location. Yeah, it yeah. really is. It's and different. you don't feel like you're in the city. It's like you're you're like away, a home away from home, but you're, you're right the in the city. You're, you're at, at the, the beach. beach. In the Bay. <laughs> now, you know, when I was growing up, I used to love to take the subway. I still do. But I used to love to take the subway to see how far I could go, to see how far it would take me. And, you know, depending on, I'd take it up to the Bronx so it comes up the elevated part by Yankee Stadium or take it all the way out to Coney Island, right? Same thing with Queens. Yeah, and you could get on the A train here. I mean, and it's the most beautiful scenic views you'll, you'll ever find. Um, so much serenity in traveling the A-Train, coming across the ocean, coming across the bay very early in the morning. Uh, some of the most beautiful views that uh, you'll see. And just ironic that, you know, this train runs through uh, Rockaway and, and, and just so much serenity in the morning when you see that sunrise from the A-Train. You know, there's a lot of history here that's music history, too. Charlie Parker, Louis Armstrong, right? Yep. People think they, they think Louis Armstrong's New Orleans, but it's Queens. Here, it's Queens, and we're actually building out the Louis Armstrong Museum here, which is going to have a grand opening uh, sometime uh, later this year. And Ella Fitzgerald, yes, uh, Jackie Robinson, um, uh, James Brown lived here. I mean, I don't. I, I guess we could go into hip hop too. I mean, LL Cool J. Like, I mean, so many great artists come out of. Uh, Queens as well, Nas. You look a little like LL Cool J. <laughs> I grew up off the block from LL Cool J. His grandmother literally lived three blocks away. Um, unfortunately, she passed. But he would come in and out of the neighborhood when I was a kid and just, uh, you know, uh, hang out on the corner with us and say, hey, I got this new song coming out. Uh, you want to hang with us? And it's funny, he's doing Rock the Bells in Queens uh, come this summer, and I'm really excited about it. I love it. So now let's talk about Something else that I remember about Queens, but talk about history. You've got a lot of cemeteries. Oh, yeah. Michael Cemetery. Uh, I mean, there's no shortage. We have the uh, right. Actually, I live near a cemetery, which is uh, uh, um, where the Grand Rabbi actually is, is buried right here in Queens and in uh, Laurelton. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of cemeteries here. Um, and that's one business that never will go out of style. I hear, people are dying, I hear people are dying to get in. I, the, I, I the only, to say it. The, I the to only say. thing you promise is death and taxes in life, Peter. I didn't know that. <laughs> but you know how many people are buried in Queens? Over 5 million. Yeah. No, but they can't vote, so yeah. I, I, I can't yeah. help you there. Yeah. 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 A different <laughs> constituency. What's the one thing when people come to Queens that they're not expecting that's, that's a surprise to them? And that, I'm, I'm talking to you, somebody born and raised here, but for, when your friends come here, What's the thing that they go, I had no idea? I mean, I think the diversity is something people um, don't really um, cherish as much as as we should. You know, you see what's going on in the city now, um, uptick in hate crimes. But when you come here, you see people from all over the world. Uh, The food scene is just phenomenal. I talked about Jackson Heights and the diversity from the the Bangladeshi community to the Colombian to the Hispanic community to the black community. So you can get literally a taste of the world in Queens. Um, And then you have all of these institutions from the Queens Museum, um, some other great restaurants like Queens Bully. I mean, and just the diversity is really something that I think um, people should really take advantage of. Um, and I think it's, it's something that we, we're very proud of here and something we're continue to, continuing to highlight in a big way. My first exposure to Queens, literally when I was like 14, the World's Fair, mm, right? Yes. And those build, some of those buildings, like the Unisphere, is still standing out there. And we're investing, actually. I was just Well, you have your there. Queens Museum out there. Yeah, which is- Queens Museum there. Uh, um, and I always give hats off to Claire Shulman, uh, 
first woman to be borough president who was one of my biggest supporters, but she literally built all of these institutions from the Queens Museum to the Queens Theater. Uh, and we're actually investing close to $7 million into the Unisphere this year. And it is my hope to try to rebirth the World Sphere and have it here again, um, but a lot of capital investment. Uh, if Eric Adams is listening, uh, we need that more money. That would be money. the mayor of New York. <laughs> <laughs> mayor of New York. <laughs> we need about $100 million. <laughs> well, you know, what most people don't realize is that is that if Queens were a city, it would be the fourth most populous city in America. Yep, 2.4 million resident, residents. And, you know, the, the outer boroughs have technically become cities amongst themselves. You look at what's going on in Long Island City. You look at what's going on in downtown Jamaica. Well, Long Island City I knew people. about because of the movie studios. Oh, yes, yes. Right. And, Silver Cup. Right, and then De Niro's son is, is building out a new studio there, We just uh, which we supported, uh, about a $500 million project. So a lot going on in, in Queens, a lot of growth. Life sciences emerging here. You know, um, when people need adventure, ventilators um, at the height of the pandemic, people don't realize that all of those ventilators were made right in Queens from Boyce Technologies. Wow. Now, I know that you know, one of your passions, two things really, affordable housing and gun violence. Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah, I got, I got my start. It was an unfortunate incident. I had a friend who was uh, killed when I was 18, shot and killed, and that's what motivated me uh, to get into uh, politics. And, you know, living out here, I mean, certainly in, in the Rockaways, uh, in my neighborhood, I mean, you hear a gunshot every night, pretty much. Um, so, you know, things got much better, but then the pandemic obviously peaked and, you know, our socioeconomic status here, um, you know, many of the challenges around uh, jobs uh, hit many communities and impacted them harder, black and brown communities. Um, so, you know, when we talk about violence, you, you look at the common denominators of what, of what is happening in these communities where unemployment is higher, where there's a lack of access, and you're going to find more gun, a lot more gun violence. But one of the things I do pride about, pride myself about in coming from this neighborhood is the relationship between police department and the community. I it's think neighborhood it's, policing? The neighborhood policing here, the 101 precinct, I can say, and I just was speaking to the police commissioner two weeks ago, it's the model. I mean, it's really, they really do do a, 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 a layman's job at really um, working with community um, and also being responsive to needs and doing just community outreach events. So it's something I'm very proud of in this community. Still a long way to go. You know, this community led in stop and frisk at one point, and that's one of the reasons the neighborhood coordinating officers were rolled out here. Um, but yeah, but gun violence, you know, we got the Cure Violence program put out here, which are, um, you know, uh, have people who might have been justice involved, uh, who might have been in gangs, uh, really doing the work on the ground to stem some of the violence on the ground. And we're doing a lot well, of Of course, one of the ways you stem the violence is economic. Economic. You got to provide jobs. And, and here, you know, um, I rezoned downtown Far Rockaway, which got us about a $300 million investment from uh, then Mayor Bill de Blasio. $40 million library. So let me go back to a quote from Joe Biden when he was a senator. Actually, I think when he was vice president, he said that LaGuardia Airport was a third world airport, which at that point insulted a lot of third world airports because there are a lot of third world airports a whole lot better than LaGuardia. So now we've seen what the Port Authority has been doing. It's, a, it's getting to be a bright, gleaming, shiny, congested airport. <laughs> and we have twenty billion dollars being invested in our local airports. I coach. Have you been? To, have you been through the airport? I have been okay. through. Okay. Did you enjoy? Did you enjoy the it Baton Death? Did you enjoy the Baton Death March? Yes, it is beautiful. Oh, wait, listen to what I just said. <laughs> listen to what I just said. <laughs> the people who design. I'm convinced that the people who design airports have never flown. They but Laguardia is beautiful. It's be beautiful to look at. You got to maneuver through it, right? Yes, you do. They put carpet in there that you can't pull your luggage. If you are handicapped in a mobility situation, your wheelchair doesn't work on it, right? The walk from the counter to the gate, it goes through three zip codes. You know we that. You can't please everybody, though, Peter. I'm not done with you yet. <laughs> But it is a beautiful airport. It Come is. on. It's just no, like won an award. No, it won an award, not for carpeting. Not for carpeting. Not for carpeting. And they put, in a, they put in people movers that go eight feet. <laughs> I, I just thought I'd bring that up because you're the borough president. 
<laughs> okay, I'm, I'm I'm feeling constituent complaints during this radio interview as well. But no, but the, the airports. I mean, considering, are really look, considering the, the actual floor plan that they had to work with, they did a great job. And and let's be clear, the prior governor like wanted this thing done. I don't think they had enough time to, to probably think some things through. He was like, no, we want this done. But no, I'm I'm proud of where we're headed. I I, I was saying I co-chaired the JFK advisory board. The governor just pumped another twelve billion, and we just did a job fair with JetBlue last week. Uh, over hey, uh, good news over for you 10,000 jobs. But good news for you that they decided to stay. Oh, I fought for Jet, that. JetBlue oh. was, was they think no, when they were leaving. There will be no jobs lost on my watch as borough president. I worked very hard with the CEO, Robin Hayes, to keep them flying in New York City, but of course in the world's borough. And uh, they just did a merger with American, actually. So 5,000 jobs. We just did a job for you. A thousand people showed up to JFK. So I'm, I'm proud to have them to keep them here. And we're going to see their terminal redone Terminal 5 redone at JFK. And then, you know, LaGuardia is moving through. So $20 billion right now of investment in both of our Okay, airports. I want you to add one more investment there. Get rid of the carpet. <laughs> well, you may not need it. We're going to do ferry. <laughs> ferry from where? Oh, um, so we're looking at, and I've proposed, so the Port Authority has come back with a proposal, being that the air train fell through. They've come back with 14 different proposals. And we're looking at ferry service from LaGuardia up into the East River. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. So we can get you out of your car. For the Marine Air Terminal? Uh, we would do, so there's the Flushing Promenade where Air Train would nationally run right. from. So there, there's room there. There's room also for light rail uh, to City Field as well, from City Field. So we're looking at many proposals from the port. Yeah, right that's now. the only thing that makes sense for me. I, if I'm going to go to a Mets game, I'm taking the subway. <laughs> well, if you can get to a subway. Yeah, well, I can get to it's, a subway. It's, it's probably easier for you to get to City Field than it is for me by public transportation. Really? And I live in Queens. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got LaGuardia, you got JFK, right? Yep. Two of the busiest airports. What's next? I mean, because you only have a <clears throat> limited amount of space to play with. Yeah, I mean, you know, there there are some opportunities to extend. I, I talked about light rail, but also there's a proposal to link the air train from downtown Jamaica into LaGuardia. So that's a very interesting proposal that, that would we're be, also make a lot studying of sense. as well, which would make a lot of sense. Yeah, exactly. And also for the workers who have to navigate getting back and forth from home. Now, your biggest challenge, of course, is to find the people who work there. Yeah. Staffing issues everywhere, big problem. Yeah, um, I, I talked about the job fair we just did, uh, but yeah, I mean, for five thousand jobs to be open at JetBlue alone. Okay, well, I got to ask you a question. Yeah, I've heard of job fairs where nobody showed up. Not this one. Really? <laughs> and we do monthly job fairs, so we're doing. Um, we're about to do an aviation job fair actually at Queensborough Hall. Uh, but well, you we came do, from an aviation background. Yes, aviation management. I, yeah. I studied. I, I never thought I would be involved in politics. I said, so hey, you I could got actually, wait a minute, aviation, you could actually go and run the airport. Exactly. And then I could take care of your carpet issue. Yeah, yo, you have no choice at that point. <laughs> <laughs> if all fails after this, I mean, you know, there's hope for me somewhere. That's right. I'll give you two orange cones. And you get, <laughs> exactly. you know, kind of bring the plane in. You know, that's it. <laughs> Hey, little known fact, if all things don't work out for you, Queens is still the home of Spider-Man. Oh, yes, it is. Oh, yes, it is. Peter Parker. That's right. <laughs> There's a lot going on in Queens. There's and that's how you get to your plane at LaGuardia. You become Peter Parker. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just use my web for your that's suitcase. That's it, see? Yeah. A different word of the web, but it's good. <laughs> Donovan, listen, what's the one thing when you look at your borough that you want to change tomorrow? Poverty. Uh, when you look at many pockets of this borough, the poverty is astounding. I talked a lot about access. This year, we were able to pump $70 million in capital funding into health care, um, into housing, into playgrounds, because folks weren't going to work, of course, but there were a lot of decrepit playgrounds that our kids had to play in technology. And um, for our schools, many of our children didn't have access to laptops, so they couldn't even do their work for some time. But healthcare, I would say, if I had to choose one thing, is the biggest thing. We need to see more beds. We lost several hospitals, including Peninsula Hospital out in the Rockaways, Mary Immaculate, where unfortunately my, my grandmother passed away. Uh, and, uh, but we need to see more hospital beds, uh, definitely more healthcare facilities expanded across the borough. My thanks to Borough President Richards. Most Americans think of New Orleans when they think of Louis Armstrong. But the folks who know, know that it's Louis Armstrong and he called Queens his home, which has been remarkably preserved. Regina Bain, the executive director of that museum, takes us inside the house. 
Regina Bain, the executive director of the Louis Armstrong House. In fact, the house in which he died, too. Yes. So the Louis Armstrong House Museum is located in Corona, Queens. And by the way, you said Louis Armstrong. I said I did. Louis. Was I incorrect? So he answered to Louis, yeah. but he, he says, my mother named me Louis. So we call him Louis. You know what? We're going to stick with Louis for the rest of this. Yes. You got it. So Corona, Queens. Yes. So the Louis Armstrong House Museum is where Louis Armstrong and his wife, Lucille, lived for 30 years. And they owned their house. And they owned their house. There were two black artists who owned their own home in the 1940s. I mean, Amazing. think about that, right? Yes. Unheard of unheard of. And when he moved to Corona, he was a star. He was a megastar with multiple uh, uh, recordings and in multiple movies. But he moved to a humble neighborhood in Corona. And he stayed there for 30 years. His wife found the house, right? Yes. So his wife was from Queens. Ah, so and she, she, ah. she is the one who actually bought the house with her own money from being a dancer uh, at the Cotton Club. And she had the married famous the Club. famous Cotton Club. And she had married Lewis and they went and immediately out on tour and that was not the life for her so she bought the house without telling Lewis and then she said the next time you come back from the road come here this is where we live now and that's why we have the museum and basically that was home that was home. She made it a historical landmark. So Louis Armstrong died in 1971. She didn't die until 1983. And in that time, she secured his legacy by making this a museum. Now, I don't know if this is a rumor. You're going to have to tell me. Mm -hmm. Is it true that he died while listening to Ella Fitzgerald? He that We know that the music that he was listening to before he died was Ella and Louis. Yes. Wow. And we know that because of our archives. So we have, as a part of the museum, the Louis Armstrong Archives, 60,000 pieces, the largest archive of any jazz musician. It's huge, and it's accessible to anyone who wants to, to check it out online. So what's in that? So in that are recordings of Lewis at home because he was an avid recorder of himself. He had reel-to-reel -reel tapes. He would record he and Lucille talking, fighting, hanging out. And in Queens lived many other celebrities, Dizzy Gillespie, these huge jazz giants. And he would record them just hanging out in his den. We have all of that in our archives. Just conversations. Conversations. He, we have him rehearsing, warming up. We have him talking about his art and what he does and why. All of that is accessible to researchers and the general public. You're going to laugh when I tell you this, but I grew up I remember watching him on the Ed Sullivan show. Mm -hmm. And what I remember so much is the handkerchief. Yes. And wiping the sweat, mm -hmm. you know, and, and his smile. He is iconic for his trumpet, his handkerchief, his smile. He's lesser known for being a, a collage artist. So that's something else we have that's in our secret. archives. Wow. It's a secret. No one knows that he was a huge collage artist. We have 700 reel-to-reel -reel tapes all decorated with his collage art as a part of our archives. Wow. Now, he was born a Baptist. Yes. But... Had a Hebrew Bible. What was that? So when he talks about when he talks about his religion, he says, "I was born a Baptist. I have a star David around my neck, and I'm great friends with the Pope. So I'm all covered." So <laughs> that's what, that's what how he talked about religion. And the the star of David was because of a family, the Karnowski family in New Orleans, that he worked for when he was a young boy, and who gave him the money for his first cornet, first first trumpet. So he was always indebted to them and thankful for that music. You know, when you think back to the 40s, especially the 50s and the age of television, which is where America really started to discover him, mm -hmm. uh, the racism there was just as bad. Yes. Uh, you, couldn't tour the, you couldn't tour America and stay at a regular hotel. No, he could not. You, right? I mean, we all know those stories. Mm -hmm. And yet, he was accepted. He was accepted as an icon on white television. He was the first black major pop star. He was the Before first to Nat have be the first the first to have billing yeah. and a, a top billing and a, and a Hollywood film. He was the first, and he's coming out of the reverberations of slavery and Jim Crow, and he made it. He was one of the first to have written in his contract that he had to be able to stay in the places that he played. Unheard of. He made that happen. He was a pioneer, a civil rights pioneer, and the, and he stuck to the contract. And he stuck to the contract. Now that wasn't always the case for him. He had to grow to that stature right. but he did make it and there were times when he was actually banned from television because of his stance the stance that he took for example with the little rock nine 
Do you know that story? Tell me that story. So the Little Rock Nine were nine students who were trying to go to school in oh, Arkansas. Oh, I know that story, but yes. tell me how Louis got involved. And Louis got involved Wait, because... you just said Louis. It's Louis. It's Louis. It's Louis. I know. I caught I you. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> so Louis, he got involved because there was a, a, a journalist who came backstage and asked him what he thought. And he said, you know what? I don't think it's right. I think Eisenhower is making a, a mistake by not standing up for these kids. And when the public heard that the beloved Louis Armstrong, the one that's always smiling, said that, they said, you know what? I don't think he should be on television, on radio. He was banned from television because of a stand he took on the Little Rock Nine. They attempted to ban him. And the reason why he was able to come back on television is because Bing Crosby and others stood up for him and said, if you don't have him, you won't have me. And that's why he was able to come back and be featured because they thought, "Mm, maybe we shouldn't have Louis Armstrong. Armstrong on right now, but they stood up for him. You know, that reminds you of the story of Frank Sinatra when he was touring with his band with Sammy Davis, and they wouldn't let the band members stay at the same hotel because they were black. Mm-hmm. And Sinatra pulled everybody out. Mm-hmm. He took them all out. Mm-hmm. People don't know, but those stories weren't reported back then. Yes, but they were critically important. And, and musicians, many musicians, they stood up for each other across race lines because they loved the music and they respected the music wherever it came from. And that's part of Louis Armstrong's story. So we should call the folks in New Orleans and tell them that, that they shouldn't really call the airport there the Louis Armstrong. No, they should. They should. And we should call the airport here after after (laughs) Louis Armstrong too. So his legacy really is worldwide. So he was born in New Orleans and we're definitely connected to and respectful of New Orleans. But he lived here for 30 years. So we have to to respect Queens for that Louis Armstrong legacy. But he toured to over 62 countries. He belongs to the world. At a time when people didn't do that much travel. Yes. He was, and and it took a toll. It took on a toll on his body, on his heart. How old was he when he so, well, it depends on when you think his birthday is. <laughs> That's the other secret about Louis Armstrong. So while he was alive, he believed his birthday was July 4th. But we found a birth certificate after he passed that said, we think it's in August. So depending on what, when you think but he you was born. But you had the year right. Well, no, maybe not. Maybe okay. not. So that's a big debate. But he was 69, 70 when he passed. Young. 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 Yeah. It takes a great deal of energy to blow that horn. It takes heart energy. It takes body energy. And because of how he traveled, it took a toll on his body. Well, considering his legacy and considering all the effects that you have there, Mm -hmm. are you doing any sort of educational program? Why, yes, we are. So the Louis Armstrong House Museum is open for tours every weekend. So you can come and you can visit the house and you can walk through. No one has lived in the house since they lived there. So it looks like they just stepped out for a moment. So you can come and experience how Louis Armstrong lived in Queens. But in addition to that, we're opening the new Louis Armstrong Center across the street from the historic home. And it's where we'll do education programming. It's where we'll have Armstrong Now. So contemporary artists doing research in the archives and the house and creating new works. There's going to be a, a jazz club in the back of that center and the archives will be upstairs. And then of course, there's all the things that we do online. Education programming that can be done anywhere in the world. Give me the website. The website is lewisarmstronghouse.org. That's lewisarmstronghouse.org. Okay, you done? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. I could go on, but no, I no, will no, stop. No, we're not done yet. I'm not. <laughs> but in terms of, of the, the legacy and training yes. uh, and educating young artists, yes. that's really what you're going for. It's critically important. It's central to our mission because Louis Armstrong is uh, about history, but it's also about the future. He was a, an early adopter. He believed in the latest technology. He believed in music, good music coming from everywhere. Jazz, of course, but it could come from everywhere. And that's a legacy that we have to teach contemporary artists right now. They should know where they come from and Louis Armstrong is a part of their past and their legacy. That's right. You got to remember the past. Yes. You got, and you have to honor the past. And you have to honor the past. When people come to the house. Mm-hmm. Um, for the very first time. Mm -hmm. What's the biggest surprise for them? They're surprised by the way that they feel. When they walk into that house, it's like you're going back in time. Some people, most people... Do you have music playing in the house? Oh, of course we have music playing in the house. And of course we have clips. So you can hear Louis and Lucille talking in the house as if they were there. And most people know Louis Armstrong. But many people 
come because of the design of the house. This is mid-century. It is gorgeous. There's this beautiful blue kitchen that when people see it, they ooh and they ah because people would want that kitchen today. So it's about the music, it's about the de decor, and it's about the history. So when are you opening up the restaurant? Oh, well. I, I'm so sorry do you know, do you know Do you know what Louis Armstrong's favorite meal was? Tell me. Red beans and rice, New Orleans, of course. And it's because Lucille cooked a mean pot of red beans and rice. That's why they got married, so he says. Um, but we hope to be able to serve some food in that new cabaret. Wow. And when's it opening? Well, it's going to be opening in the fall. So you should come on out. I love it. Mm -hmm. I love it. I mean, look, the history in Queens mm -hmm. is always surprising to me. Mm -hmm. This is surprising to me because mm -hmm. most people don't know he lived there for 30 years. He lived there for 30 years and he's part of a jazz ecosystem in Queens. My thanks to Regina. Every year come September, it's time for the U.S. Open held at the Arthur Ashe Stadium. That's in Queens too. It's the world's largest tennis stadium. And Danny Zausner, the CEO, stops by with a history of this facility and the tournament. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Daniel, how are you, man? Welcome, Peter. Welcome to Queens, New York City's <laughs> greatest borough. <laughs> Thank you for that promotion. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I've said this before. Being a born and bred Manhattan guy, I always thought I needed a visa to go to Queens. You, you need a visa to come to Queens, Peter, but we take it away from you and we don't let you leave. <laughs> Is that your story? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm born and bred in Queens, and I've been working at the USPA for the last 20 years, so I guess you can consider me a Queens resident. And I've been lucky enough to go, um, and it's just an amazing experience, because when you sit in that stadium, uh, it's intimate. It really is. Uh, it's you're, you're not in the Euchre seats. Uh, you hear you hear the bounce of the ball. You hear you hear the grunts of the players as they're breathing in and out. Um, you hear the curse of the players every once in a while, depending on who's playing. But the great thing is, I don't think there's a bad seat in that building. No, you're you're spot on. It is the world's largest tennis stadium, Arthur Ashe Stadium. But at the same time, it's incredibly intimate. But then it's not just the Arthur Ashe Tennis Stadium. How many people does it hold, by the way? Arthur Ashe holds 24,000 seats, and you're, you're correct. They're, it's the whole complex. It's the USA Billie Jean King National Tennis Center, and we use all 18 courts to play the U.S. Open, and all of those courts get used throughout the two weeks of the, of the main draw of the tournament. And a couple of years ago, of course, every time I drove by, I saw the additional construction. You built a roof, didn't you? We, we did. We, we, we went through a transformation of the National Tennis Center, the USTA, and invested about $650 million. We put a roof over Arthur Ashe Stadium. We built a new Lewis Armstrong Stadium, which is 14,000 seats. We built a new grandstand court, 8,250 seats. And our entire South Campus got rebuilt as well. So basically 40 out of the 40 acres on the site were completely rebuilt. That's a lot of construction. Wow. And I have to tell everybody, you fill those stadiums. We, we draw over 800,000 people during the two weeks of the main draw. We hold Fan Week, which is our qualifying tournament the week before that. And so over those three weeks, over 800,000 people. It's an incredible economic boom for the city of New York. Well, here's the secret. If you really want to find out who's going to be playing in the U.S. Open next year or the year after, go to the earlier, uh, the earlier games to see who's qualifying. Also to see who didn't qualify because they're going to be back. And you're right, Peter, because, you know, during the tournament, we hold our junior competition as well. And some of those juniors have gone on to win the U.S. Open within the next five to ten years. Amazing. So is it all tennis all the time? We, we host throughout the years. We run our regular recreational tennis programs. We host a lot of high school and college graduations on campus. We, we run some special concerts as well. Uh, but we're, we're a mission-based organization, so it's primarily a tennis. You've had concerts there? Who's played? 
Oh, I don't want to drop names, but we've, we've, we even <laughs> held uh, AEW wrestling last year. AEW wrestling is coming back this year to a sold out crowd is their largest crowd ever in New York city. So it's a uh, stadium and the grounds are a very special place for all types of unique events. Wrestling. Wrestling is hot. WWE's got a lot of competition with AEW wrestling and they're both doing incredibly well throughout the country. So what do you do? Remove the net and just let them go at it? <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, it was just, it's like cage matches galore. <laughs> so we go from tennis and address whites and a very polite play to Hulk Hogan. <laughs> yes, not exactly the same audience, but we try to appeal to everybody, much like tennis does. We're, we're a sport for everyone. Okay, are there any chairs left in the stadium when the when the wrestling match is over? <laughs> Not only are all of our chairs left over, but we put very special commemorative seats on the floor and the fans get to take those seats home with them. So the only seats that leave the fans are the ones that are on the floor. Wow. So putting that roof over the stadium allows you to be an all-year-round facility. It, uh, well, we, we're we still uh, an indoor-outdoor facility, even with a roof, so we're not climate-controlled. So I, I wouldn't suggest the, for the St. Far trying to do an indoor event in December through March. No, but you got wait. Hold on, right, hold on, Daniel. I got an idea for you. You're missing an opportunity here. Here's what you do. I'm ready? Here it is. February. Every February, you do freezing wrestling. I want to see that. I like it. I like it. Can you promise me another eighteen thousand people as passionate about it as you are? Hey, with enough alcohol, anything's possible. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, free. I, I I would actually go out and watch two guys freeze in that ring. I mean, it, it'd be kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> on skates, Nola. Hey, now, okay, see, you've just upped the ante. I'm in. I am totally in. I, I love it. So let me ask you another question about, about the actual, you have 24,000 seats in that, or is it 2427? 24,000. 24, and I kept on saying there's not a bad seat in the house. There isn't. But where is pricing now? Because it's a tough ticket to get. So needless to say, the, the popularity of the event uh, has been incredibly strong every year. We're breaking record after record. So Arthur Ashe Stadium, the court side seats can be on the pricey side as well. Of our, We have a tremendous volume of affordable seats. And for those who've been out to the Open before, you know that there's no greater value in sports than our grounds passes because that gets you access to the matches throughout the grounds as well as Louis Armstrong Stadium and the grandstand court. So, you know, there's only so many, we only put four matches a day in Arthur Ashe Stadium. All the other matches that take place throughout the two weeks are out on the grounds in the other stadiums. And you can get a grounds pass very affordably. Watch tennis from 11 a.m. to 11 p.m. Now, you're on about 42 acres out there. Is there any room to expand, or are you just stuck with that footprint? Uh, that, that's our footprint. We're in a New York City park, and parkland in New York City is precious, so we wouldn't even think to expand upon the 42 acres. All right, so let me ask you another question. You can't expand width-wise. Can you expand height-wise? What can you, is there a way to, to, to go up? Uh, we can go up. We just can't go down. We have a very high water table, so there's no place for us to go down. Yeah, because if you look at the, uh, the land there, you take a shovel and you dig down about three or four feet, you're, you've got water. <laughs> exactly right. It's true. And, and in fact, not far from your stadium is where they used to do all the water skiing demonstrations in the 1939 uh, World's Fair. I mean, they, and they used to have beautiful aqua, you know, aquabatics. You are correct. You're an incredible historian of the 39 World's Fair as well as the 64 World's Fair. Well, I, I, I remember as a kid watching NBC, which was the official network of the World's Fair of 1964, and who was the host? You're not going to get it. I don't think you're going to get it. Ready? Go ahead. Lorne Green, the star of Bonanza. Ooh, exactly. <laughs> and, That's impressive. And we had Haas and Little Joe, and they all were out there running around the, 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 the place. Uh, what I'm waiting to see, because I know the Unisphere is still intact and, and it's been preserved, but you've got a couple of other buildings out there that haven't. Are they doing anything with them at all? Yes. A matter of fact, there's a lot of great stuff going on in, in the park, Flushing Meadows Corona Park. And Park Hall of Science is a facility that dates back to the 64th Fair, the Queen's Theater, the Botanical Gardens, the Queen's Museum. Queen's Museum was actually the, the original United Nations when it first came to New York City. So uh, there are some buildings that could use some funding for improvement, the New York State Pavilion being one of them, which is uh, after the World Fair, got some claim from Men in Black. And Iron Man. So there's 
some incredible movie scenes that have been filmed in the park as well. There you go. You can recreate those special moments. <laughs> exactly. But, but listen, I'll, I'm going to try to get out to the open. It's it, it's always in the it's always in the fall, right? It's always September. We are the last week of August and the first week of September. We kind of intersect with Labor Day weekend, match finals uh, early in September. Right, and then if you're really smart, call me. I'll put it together for you, Daniel. Freeze your ass off February at the center. What do you think? You'll get both extremes. We'll see you out here in late summer for the U.S. <laughs> Open, and then we'll see you out in the middle of the winter time for our wrestling on skates. <laughs> That's right. You threw in the skates again. I love it. Okay, you know LaGuardia is in Queens. You know the Louis Armstrong House is in Queens. And the Arthur Ashe Stadium's in Queens. But that's just a fraction of what's in Queens. Sally Tennant, who runs the Queens Museum, knows a thing or two about that borough. Hey, Sally. Hey, good morning. So let's talk about it. I mean, you know, people forget there's such great history there. And not just history that we talk about is like from the 1939 World's Fair. We're talking about history from like three weeks ago. I mean, even, you know, because when you think about all the developments that have happened in New York, so much of them have happened in Queens. That's right. And I think that, um, you know, we are past forms our present and our future, as we know. And the Queens Museum, we're lucky to be in a building that kind of holds on to many different stories. We were, the, as you said, the last remaining building from the 39 World Fair. And that was a time when we were recovering from the Great Depression. So it was a really hopeful utopian project built as part of the World Fair, hoping for a new future, you know, and bringing together representatives from all over the world. And then after that, we were actually, we also were the first client of the United Nations General Assembly, which means means that whilst, you know, before it was built in Manhattan. So amazing things happened in this building. The drafting of the Declaration of Human Rights, which was declared in Paris, but still was written here in Queens in our building. Um, the founding of UNICEF, and we're currently beginning a capital project to build the Children's Museum to honor that history here. And um, many other amazing stories. So we're really proud of those. We were also an ice rink, and we were a roller skating rink, and then we were again the World's Fair in 64. Well, so we I became have... in 72. <laughs> Sorry, I, well, no, no. I was going to I was just going to jump in and say, I remember the ice rink, and I remember the roller oh, rink. Yeah? I'm, I'm, just because I remember it, I think I'm going to check into a home. But it's true. <laughs> it's true. And, and just to give people a sense of place, you're located in Flushing Meadows Park, and to give you an idea of a sense of place there, you're not far from the Unisphere, from the 64 World's Fair. In fact, you remember the old guy, it's it's a crazy stadium there on the water that used to be there where they used to do, uh, you know, uh, aquatic exhibitions too. I mean, there's just so much, yeah, there's just so much there. But let's talk about the about what's in the building because you call yourself a community museum. Explain. Yeah, so we're a community museum. I mean, we're located, so Queens is the most, most ethnically and culturally diverse place in the United States. We benefit from having over 160 languages spoken in the borough. And, you know, people from all over the world move to and live in Queens. And we, you know, the majority of people here speak a language other than English as their first language at home. So it's a kind of really exciting place that really means you can, it's hyper-locally international. We, we, rep- we have the world in Queens. And so running a museum in Queens means we need to understand uh, what our communities really want from us. So we spend a lot of time talking to and working with our communities, listening to them, and then working with them to decide what we put into our galleries. So it's not a museum that kind of uh, just puts on exhibitions and hopes people will come, but really rather we work together with our communities to determine what it is that they want to see and how it can connect to their communities, which are really incredibly diverse. You know, we can work with artists from Nepal or Southeast Asia or South Asia or East Asia or um, Central America, South America, you know, like all over the world, we, we have communities here. And so that means they can connect with artists from all over the world. So that feels like a, a really great opportunity. And then, of course, the the other thing is that like Queens was hit really hard over the last two years during the pandemic, the systemic kind of issues um, that mean that, that a lot of the people living here don't really have um, access to unemployment or access to the kind of support that a lot of other people have. They may be working in precarious jobs, means that there was a lot of food insecurity uh, and many other kinds of insecurity. So as a museum, we opened our doors and we developed a cultural food pantry two years ago, which we're still running. And it's been exciting to provide not only art, 
and culture and design and architecture, but also provide space for La Jornada, our local food pantry, to distribute food to our community as well. Well, I remember, you know, going on the Grand Central Parkway and passing that museum with all of your banners out in front, you know, celebrating the local heroes of the pandemic. Yeah. And, and so many of them live, work and breathe in Queens. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about the community. What kind of community exhibits are you doing um, that we can see, let's say, you know, for the rest of this year? Yeah, so we, I mean, so we were, we have a whole range of things that you can see when you visit the museum. First and foremost, we, we are home to the Panorama of New York City, which is a one to 1,000 scale model of New York. Um, and it's Oh yeah, let's, let's talk about that because when you see yeah. that, that, that's amazing. You walk in <laughs> and you look at that and that's the first time you really get a chance to appreciate size, right? I mean, you walk you, in... You look at New York, you, you see uh, you're kind of above the city. The way that the, the, um, the exhibit is designed, you know, during the World's Fair, you got into like a cable car and you drove around and looked down on the city of New York. But no, we no longer have the cable cars, but we have this glass walkway so you walk around the model. And so like it was built for the 1964 welfare as an urban planning tool by Robert Moses. And it is it has every building at the time, uh, a model, a one to 1,000 scale model of that building constructed in situ. And the size of the model is 9,335 square feet. So it's big. And you can walk around it. And as you walk around it, you see all five boroughs really clearly. But you also see the water. You realize that actually New York is really surrounded by water. And uh, you can really think about what that might mean for us in the future. And then it's been updated three times. Uh, the last time was in 1992. And we're always wondering how we bring it into the present. Because you can't, the minute you update a model, somebody builds another building. So you're always going to be out of date in a way. So we're working with digital technology and new tools to give people the opportunity to time travel, both into the past and into the future uh, with the model. But yeah, there's a, I think I can give you some facts. It took um, 100 models makes three months to build the model. Wow. And there are um, 830,000 buildings uh, on the model. And um, there are 3,100 colored lights showing the location of all the municipal buildings. Of course, that's out of day now, but it's really great. It goes through a kind of daytime, nighttime cycle. And then all these lights come on and they show you where all the municipal buildings are, the libraries, the schools, the police stations, where all of those were located. And I just have one question. I just have one. I have one question. Does it light up and show me the traffic on the Grand Central Parkway at five o'clock in the afternoon? Yes, we don't have a live traffic capacity <laughs> uh, at the moment. But I always say we have we have New York in our building and we have the Unisphere outside, so we have the world on our doorstep. Literally outside our, our door facing park, we have we have the Unisphere. So it's for us it's like a I think it's a really exciting um, way to learn about the history of New York and the history of the five boroughs, the history of both world fairs and the kinds of changes that the city has been through over the last you know, uh, 80 years. Well, listen, Sally, if, if I can make one suggestion as you start to update that model, uh, and this is obviously a point of personal preference, please don't include those ugly, pencil-thin new high-rises in Manhattan. It's Oh, I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I wouldn't dare to comment on such things, but I would say that we haven't updated it since '92, and we will be uh, we will be updating it digitally. But I, I don't know whether we're going to update it. Actually, I'm going to run a competition to ask people what they think. We should well, let me update. let me put it th- let me put it this way: yeah. if you do update it and include those buildings, and you walk in three days later and they're gone, I'm the guy who took them out. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, listen, the other thing that I love about your museum is that you've got artist studios right there on site. Yeah, we have nine artist studios. So, you know, we want our player play our role, not only in exhibiting modern and contemporary art and our collection, but also supporting artists who really are the beating heart of New York. They're the art and culture is the soul of New York, I think. And it's it's such a cultural city and you know, you really felt that during the pandemic. Culture never stopped here. And it was one of the things that made it possible to keep uh, keep moving around the city and it's going to be part of how the city recovers. But yeah, we we think it's important to support artists and provide space for artists not only make exhibitions but really to make art so we have we have uh, them on site in the building and they work together through our education programs with our communities as well as making exhibitions you know one of the exhibits that you've got is called the medium is not the only message which of course is is not is is the reverse of the old marshall McLuhan book tell me about that yeah 
Yeah, so this is an exhibition by an amazing artist called Suzanne Lacey. She is, uh, she's been making art for the last six decades that really looks at how uh, to raise um, the voices of people who are often overlooked. So she, in the like six through the 70s and 80s, work with women uh, to talk about issues like aging and gender violence. And she she, she did these collective projects where she brought large groups of women together in huge public performances. And then they uh, were filmed and recorded and we're presenting them actually for the first time in New York so that people can see this really important practice that's kind of not a traditional art practice, but really a practice that looks at um, kind of relationships between people as the form, as the way that you make the art. And then how does that come in, into the present? So she she um, she's really interested, you know, using that title is really about the, it's not just, it's not just the medium, it is the content that's really important. And so her work really is about whose voices do we listen to? Whose voices do we privilege? And how can we uh, use the cultural spaces we have to bring to the four voices that perhaps we don't hear that often. Yeah. My thanks to Sally, to Danny Zausner, to Regina Bain, and to Borough President Donovan Richards. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, you know the drill. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.